You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. James chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And we're going to begin a new series in the book of James this, this evening. I'm excited about this series and, um, because James is an extremely practical book. And James includes five chapters, 108 verses. It's, it's not a long book, but it is rich in, in practical, tangible, day-to-day Christian help. And a book this rich and yet also fairly short, I also believe is a great, uh, a great candidate for memorization. You know, experts tell us, and you could read about this too, that our brains have virtually unlimited storage. I'm not, I'm not saying we're, we're good at memorizing and retaining all of it, but our brains can learn something new all the time. And you say, I have forgotten more than I know. Well, I feel that way sometimes too, but I do think that we, that we sometimes sell it short that God designed our brains to be an incredible machine. And really, God's design is better than computer designs. And I want to encourage you to utilize it. Maybe as we go through uh, this series on, on Sunday nights, maybe work on memorizing um, some parts of the book of James. And tonight, uh, we're going to just look at maybe at an overview of the book. So it'll be more like teaching and uh, maybe not as much application, but there will be good application um, and we're just going to look at the very first verse for application. So I'd like to just uh, stand together and read this first verse. I'll read it once and then we'll read it together out loud. And that's all we're going to read tonight. And so a little bit different than Genesis 24 where we've got 67 verses we're trying to get through. James chapter 1 verse 1, I'll read it first. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ... To the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Let's read it together. James 1, 1, ready, begin. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. Tonight's message is really going to be, by the time we get past the overview, just a look at the first three words of this book. And it says, James, a servant. James, a servant. Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for providing it. I pray that you'd help us tonight, Lord, and just help fill in the gaps in my own, my own mind or my own heart. And just, uh, Lord, I, I, can't, I can't do this without, without you. I, I can't do it on my own. Fully dependent on you and your Holy Spirit at all times. And Lord, tonight I pray that you'd help us to learn what it is that James is trying to convey and then as we start this walk through this book, that you would help us to learn everything we can and gain all that we need to, that you plan for us to, without missing anything. We love you. We love you, your word. We're thankful that it is, that it's perfect, that it's, that it's inspired and infallible and inerrant, and, and we, we can trust it. I'm so thankful for it. I pray that you bless our time in it tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The book of James has been called by some a a practical guide to Christian life and conduct. Um, You might even say that you've seen the, you've probably seen those books that it says, you know, sewing for dummies or or, uh, violin for dummies or 
or preaching for dummies. I don't know if there's a preaching for dummies or not. There, there seems to be a book for dummies about every subject you can think of. Well, in some ways, I don't mean to be disrespectful to it, but in some ways, that's the kind of detail James gets to. He gets right down, you might say, down on the bottom shelf, right where we live. Uh, he, he gets very practical in this book. Uh, many say that the book of James is like the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, it, as you read the book, you definitely begin to see that, that much of James is highlighted by short, concise, straightforward imperatives or commands to us. It's full of short one-line, some people call them one-line wisdom speeches, which would be like Proverbs. They're approximately 59 di imperatives, direct imperatives, and, and it means there's about one command for every two verses. Um, some other facts about James is that it refers uh, to 20, 21 or 22 Old Testament books. There, there are about 15 correlations to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in this, in this small book. Uh, much of the book connects to the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. And there are about 30 different references to nature. And so it really is one of those books that is practical and yet illustrative. Uh, uses nature examples to get ideas across. It's simple, yet it's rich. And it's a letter written to impact the way that we live for Christ. And it is worth our time and attention. So who is James? Well, where do we start with James? Well, uh, there are a few different Jameses in the Bible. There are two apostles named James. One of those, well, we could, we're not going to look at it tonight, but one was the brother of John. James, uh, the brother of John, the son of, of Zebedee. Together they were called, anybody remember what they were called together? The sons of what? The sons of thunder. I mean, if, I guess if I had a nickname, I'd want it to be the sons of thunder. Um, they, they, they were part of Jesus' inner circle. Uh, in Acts 12, it records that James, that James, the brother of John, was killed by the sword. One of the early martyrs of the church. The other apostle named James was the son of Alphaeus or Cleopas. And, and he had a brother named Judas, not Judas Iscariot. Little, very little is known of him. Um, turn over to Galatians chapter 1. We'll, we'll start to see uh, the writer of this book. We'll start to see who that is over here. Galatians chapter 1. This is another James, and it says in verse 118, 1 and 18 and 19, Galatians 1. It says, then after three years, um, this is Paul talking, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles uh, saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. So here we see another James in the New Testament. And this one is James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ himself. And it's interesting to consider James's spiritual journey before salvation. Look over in John chapter 7. So keep your place. We'll be back in James. But John chapter 7. John chapter 7. It says in verse 5. I know it's a lot of turning, but it'll keep us active tonight. John chapter 7 verse 5. It says... 
Um, I'll just begin reading in verse 1. It says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doest anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. And it's interesting that Jesus Christ's own family did not believe that Jesus Christ was who he was. They, they had a tough time with it. If you can imagine, uh, no, I don't know that Jesus Christ was, was a, perfect, a perfect person and, and he, was, he was a good kid. I, I mean, he would have to have been a good kid. Um, but it was still hard for them to accept who he was saying that he was, even his own family. Well, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, again, talking about James, the, the brother of Jesus Christ. And this is a significant verse um, because it mentions him by name. This is after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Um, and we'll just begin reading in verse 3. It says, For I delivered, this is Paul, Paul writing, he said, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Who can tell me the, the word that we use to describe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What do we say that is? That's the gospel in a nutshell. The death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas. And who's, who is Cephas? That's Peter. He was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. And I'll just start, stop right there uh, to say that, that I believe that part of the gospel is the fact that Jesus Christ was seen of so many people alive. It confirms that Jesus Christ came out of the tomb and was alive again. And it says he was, seen of, he was seen of all of these Cephas, then of the 12 apostles, then of above 500, all at one time. And by the way, and when he says some are, he says the greater part remain unto this present. You know why that matters is because um, Paul knew that the people that said Jesus was alive, when he wrote this letter, they were still alive. So if someone read his letter and says, well, I don't know if Jesus was really alive, they could have gone and found people that literally saw him with their own eyes. That's an important part of the gospel message. And that's the one I always go to when someone says, I just don't know if Jesus is real or who he is, who he says he is. And I said, listen, Jesus rose from the dead. And he wasn't just seen of one or two. He was seen of a large group of people all at one time. He is alive and only Jesus could do that. Says after that it says in verse seven. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and the fact that the two other James mentioned in the New Testament were both apostles leads us to very clearly. And most people, most scholars would agree with this that this James in verse seven is talking about Jesus Christ's own brother. So if you can imagine. Jesus Christ, he rises from the dead, he, he goes to see Peter, he sees the 12, he sees 500 at once, and then he goes to his own brother. 
and something, and we don't know when his conversion took place, but I like to think that his conversion took place when he saw his own brother Jesus Christ alive again. He saw him alive and... (coughs) Excuse me. He saw him alive and something must have clicked in him because... At one point, we see that even his own brother didn't believe his own brethren didn't believe in Jesus, and yet the next the next time that we read about James, um, he God is using him in a great way. Excuse me. <coughs> so at that point, it seems that James understood, like all of us must, that sin was his problem and hell was his consequence. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was his only answer. Because at some point, James finally believed. And many conservative scholars then attribute the authorship of this book to James, the brother of Jesus Christ. And I believe that myself as well. James became a key person in the Jerusalem church, probably the pastor, if we were to if we were to look at Acts chapter 15, there was a major dispute that arises and, and you've got the Jews and you've got those that are ministering to the Gentiles and the Jews are saying that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And maybe you remember this account in Acts chapter 15 and they're saying you've got to be circumcised and so that meant that all the Gentiles that were being won to the Lord through Paul and Peter and all the others, that they, were to, they would have had to have come and been circumcised in order to receive salvation. Well, we know that's not the case. You know, Jesus Christ finished the work on the cross and it's by faith alone in his finished work that we are saved. But the Jews had a tough time overcoming their thoughts on circumcision. So there's a big dispute and it says in Acts 15 that James stood up. And when James stood up, he helped clear the air and he helped settle that dispute with everybody. So obviously, James became a a key person in the Jerusalem church. And most people believe that James actually, the brother of Jesus, became the pastor of the church at Jerusalem. If you can imagine what kind of a ministry that would be. I mean, thousands and thousands of people coming to the Lord. And James is a key member or a key person in the church and likely the pastor. Look over at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. It says in verse, in, uh, verse 9, Galatians 2, 9. And it says, and, uh, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars. Now, uh, he says, perceive the grace that was given unto me. This is Paul. They gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen and they unto the circumcision. And this isn't talking about James, the brother of, of, of John. This is talking about James, the brother, of, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So at this point, if you notice, too, that James is listed first. And it doesn't always mean anything, but I do think that there's significance here that James was mentioned as these are the three pillars of the church at Jerusalem, James and Cephas and John. James is mentioned first, and and we see here that James was one of those three who were very influential at the church of Jerusalem. Tradition tells us that he was, he was the pastor, he was influential, that, he, that God, the Lord transformed him um, to be a, a key member in the early church. Uh, 
he, he was also a man devoted to prayer. And, and we're going to see these things as we go through. But, but uh, he begins and ends the book with a strong encouragement to pray. Uh, it is said that he was so devoted to prayer that the early disciples gave James the moniker of camel knees. That he was on his knees so much in prayer. That he was so devoted in prayer that, that his knees bore the marks of how much time he spent on his knees. And the idea, you know, that he, that he built up calluses because he was so devoted to prayer. That's James, the half-brother of Jesus. And most scholars also accept that James is likely the oldest book of the New Testament, perhaps written even before the Gospels. These are just all the things about James that it's good for us to know. Okay, so who are the readers? Who was he writing to? Well, he says in verse 1 of James, we'll go back over there. James chapter 1 it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad, greeting. So he says, to the 12 tribes, which are scattered abroad. Uh, who, do, who do you normally think of when you think of the 12 tribes? Well, I, I mean, I think of the Jews. I think of the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and uh, the Jews were scattered or dispersed all through the known world. And they had been dispersed either by involuntary displacement or in search of a better living condition. And we know that they were dispersed early on from the Syrians and Babylonians uh, and then later by Rome. The target audience, though, is the Messianic Jews that are scattered abroad. Uh, they, and, and when I say Messianic, I mean Messiah. These were the Jews that had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, these, this wasn't written to the Jews that were still holding the old line, that were still meeting in the temple and had rejected Christ. No, they were saved. They were, they were ch children of God. They had been saved through it by, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. So this is a book for believers. I mean, because we're all, I mean, we're all saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. It was written for the benefit of Jewish believers scattered abroad, but it doesn't just apply to them. It's a general letter for scattered believers and not one particular church. I mean, many of Paul's epistle, epistles, if you look at his letters, they were written to the church at Corinth, to the churches of Galatia. They were written uh, to a church in Ephesus or Philippi. Or, you know, you go on and on. Those churches were written to one group of people. But this is a general letter for, for all the believers scattered abroad. And it's one of the group of, of epistles toward the end of the New Testament that's just general in nature it's not written to a geographical location it's written to to believers so what's the purpose of the letter what is it that that James is trying to get across well uh, Warren Wiersbe in his B series of the New Testament studies he offers what I think is a good overview as to the purpose of James he, he states that James writes in response to the problem of spiritual immaturity spiritual immaturity Therefore, James's letter is saying, be mature. And I thought about titling this series, Grow Up. Or maybe right now, hey, wake up. It's okay. Wake up, grow up, be mature. Because it's, e I mean, it's easy to, uh, to kind of be thrown into it sometimes, into the Christian life. And maybe this happened to you where you're just kind of thrown in and you're doing the things that you know you're supposed to. But you're not really sure that, you're, that you have spiritual maturity enough to, to really do it out of the outflow of your relationship with God. 
It's pretty easy, isn't it, at times to say, well, I went to church on Sunday and everybody was dressed like this, so I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy that certain way to dress and I'm going to do that on uh, next Sunday. So you come the next Sunday and you're dressed the right way, but I wouldn't necessarily say if you've only been saved for maybe a few days that it's coming out of an outflow of a mature relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and so you think about these Messianic Jews that had been scattered abroad, and, and you have to think there's some immaturity there. Uh, the word perfect shows up very often in the book of James, and that's what James is trying to get across. And you say, well, James, I don't know that I can be perfect, but the word perfect doesn't mean sinless. The word perfect means mature. It means wholeness. It means completion. It means brought to its end. It means, it means finished. It's kind of like we were talking about with someone this week, like, like cheese. You know, like aged cheese. You know, and you, cheese has to age for a while before it tastes good. Now, some of you like American cheese that comes in the wrapper. I'm not really sure about you. My kids like that kind of cheese. I'm sorry, they put it at the, on the burgers at Zesto. On a burger at Zesto, it tastes good. Okay, sorry. But if you're just going to eat a piece of cheese, I want a piece of cheddar cheese or something that, that's aged for a few months. It's got better flavor. We went to Paris one time on a, way, on a missions trip. Um, just to clarify, we were on our way to India, so suffering for Jesus. We stopped in Paris, though. <laughs> and there was a missionary, and he brings out this, this tray of cheese. And he starts us off on the cheese that hadn't been aged as long. And, and I try it, and I'm like, okay, pretty strong, but I can handle it. Aaron tries it, and I see her turn very pale. <laughs> so he pulls out the next strongest cheese. And I get to, like, number three or four, and I'm like, I am out. I cannot do this anymore. And he was picking up pieces of mold about that big and just popping them in his mouth and saying, that's cheese. No, thank you. <laughs> I don't know. If you like that kind of cheese, that's fine, but it's, it's weird to me that you'd eat mold. I don't know. But you know, there is something about cheese, the, the people that are, are experts in cheese that say if it's been aged, it's better. It's kind of come to its completion, it's, it's finished. And that really, that's the idea that, that James is trying to get across, is that he wants us to be mature in Christ. He wants us to, to show that we have grown, that we've matured, that we're, that, we're, that we're not perfect as in sinless, but that we're complete, that we're mature. And he's dealing with these, these folks that are going through problems, and the problems are revealing their immaturity. You know, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but life is full of problems. Problems like temptations and trials in chapter 1. We're going to talk about those temptations and trials and how they come and how you wish you could avoid them. But, but in the end, they're good for us because they reveal where we are. And you're going to, you, in chapter 2, he talks about how we have to learn how to deal with people that are different than we are. And there are going to be people come in and there are people that are dressed real nice and they look real good. And then you've got people coming into the same service and they're not dressed very well. And they're poor and they come in off the street. And how the, the immaturity of the people that were reading this letter was, was they were kind of gravitating to the ones over here because of how they looked. And yet James says, but the ones over here and the ones over here are all the same before God. He's saying there's going to be problems like dealing with jealousy and envy even at church. In chapter 3, how there's a problem of keeping your tongue under control. I'm so glad we've evolved past that one. 
aren't you? Chapter 4, how to keep yourself from worldliness. In chapter 5, how to obey God and, and, and keep, keep obeying him so that you don't have to deal with the effects of things like poor health because of it. And, and all of those things, I mean, these are all problems that reveal our maturity. And as hard as difficulties are, they have a revealing effect. And I've been saying this for the last year and a half, coronavirus, as hard as it's been, it's revealed some things about people. It's been a revealer, um, you know, of, of, you know, we thought that people were this, this level or this maturity level and, and yet coronavirus comes and, and now it starts to reveal whether or not people are as committed as they say they are. And I'm thankful the vast majority at Eastside are still right here. I mean, what a blessing to see that. Because I know churches and I've talked to pastors that say coronavirus, coronavirus revealed a lot of things about our church. And you know about 50% of our church we haven't seen back since we started having services again. It's happening everywhere. It's revealing some things. And I'm not thankful for coronavirus. I know people that I, I've lost people that I love, that I'm close to, that have, that have suffered because of it. But I am thankful for, for, the, for the people of God's sake that we had to face something that would reveal where we really were when it comes to Jesus Christ. So the believers that were reading James, they weren't dealing with problems in, 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 a, in a mature manner. They, and it was compounding the problems. It's not like you know, many of them had been saved very long. I mean, <clears throat> once they'd been saved, they'd been scattered I mean, think about it. Uh, this, at this time, we, we read in the book of, of Acts how people were coming to Christ and they were adding thousands of people at a, time, at a time. And yet, just a couple chapters later, they're being dispersed because of persecution. So those people that were getting saved, they didn't have a whole lot of time to be grounded. They didn't, they didn't have a whole lot of time to really grow and, and age like good cheese. They, they, were, they were immature, and then now suddenly they're being scattered. And, and I mean, think about it. It's not that opportunity in years to grow. And some believe James wrote this letter as early as 45 AD, which was only 12 years after the death of Jesus Christ. And it's not as if the, the, the people reading this were raised by Christian parents. They hadn't been raised by Christian grandparents, likely. I mean, maybe followers of God, but not Christians per se, there were no second generation Christians reading this letter. So when, when problems arose, their responses would have been anything but mature. They, they would have responded according to what seemed natural, which gets us, always gets us in trouble. And they needed to learn that, that to be, how to be a follower of Christ and how to respond to problems. You could think of it this way. In many ways, James was giving them a series of tests to examine their maturity. He gives them a series of tests to examine their maturity. The tests are, are things like this. The test of perseverance and suffering. And you know, someday we, we might see that in our own country. Now suffering will come and persecution will come. And you'll know the maturity level of the people that are facing the suffering based on if they persevere or not. Based on if they're still standing in the face of persecution, that's how we'll know if there's maturity. There's also the test of blame and temptation and how we tend to blame other, other people or we, tame, we blame outside sources. And yet James says, no, it's your own lust. When your own lust conceives and brings forth sin and it brings forth death, it's your fault. It's nobody else's. 
There's a test of response to the world and, or sorry, to the word and how, how the word comes and if we look at it and, and we behold our face in the mirror then we walk away without changing, we've revealed that we're immature. Whereas if we look at the word and we let it change us, we reveal that we're, we were mature. There's the test, the test of impartial love in chapter 2. And like I said earlier, there are those that are coming in and they've got great clothes. And those that come in and they look poor. And if you gravitate toward this over here, you're revealing your immaturity. Because God loves every person the same. He talks about the test of righteous works. You know, how we, well, these, these that come in here and they don't have nice clothes or they're poor. And we say, you know, God bless you, brother. Be warmed and filled. Yeah, we send them on, our, on their way and we don't take any steps to help them be warmed and filled. It's a test of maturity. A test of maturity is, another, is a test of the tongue. And our, that James chapter 3 is, is almost all dedicated to the tongue and how if you have a tongue that doesn't control itself and, and you don't have control over the things that you say and, it, and out of the same mouth you're blessing God and yet on the other hand you're also cursing God. You're revealing that you're immature in Jesus Christ. You've got the test of humble wisdom in which is when, our, when we have earthly wisdom on one hand or heavenly wisdom and we lean toward earthly wisdom at times, we reveal our immaturity. The test of worldly indulgences and the test of dependence. We're either dependent on riches or we're dependent on the Lord. The test of patient endurance. The test of truthfulness. If He says, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. You, know, you talk about an issue in our culture... You can't believe anything anybody says anymore. We have people, and they'll say, you know, I'll be there at a certain time. Judy can tell you this. I'll be there at a certain time on a certain day. And we say, okay, you know, just call us before you come or call us if that changes. And, and I mean, they, they could come days later. We never hear a word from them. And yet, the Bible says, let your yay be yay. Christian, listen, if, you, if you're the kind of person that says, yeah, I'll be there at this time, and people can't depend on you to be there at that time, you're revealing immaturity. I mean, and by the way, Christian, don't let, don't let people in ministry wait on you. I mean, choir practice at 4.30, be there at 4.25. I mean, let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. And I'm not trying to make it more serious than it really needs to be, but that, that's a, that, is a, that is a maturity issue right there because by saying, I will be in the choir, you're saying, I'll be at practice and I'll be there early. And if you're not going to be at practice, um, you know, maturity says you let Brother Samuel know. If you're not going to be in your place on Sunday morning, um, Brother Mark, that's happened to you before where somebody isn't going to be in their place and Brother Mark, he's normally trying to get somebody to fill in the spot. You know, maturity says, let your yay be yay and your nay be nay. I know those things can happen. Uh, but, but listen, if we're going to be the example of maturity in a world that doesn't have spiritual maturity, then we ought to be, we ought to be on top of those kinds of things. Let your yay be yay and your nay be nay, he says. There's the test of truthfulness, the test of prayerfulness. I mean, the test of, uh, of true faith. I mean, there's... This, it's full of tests. You say, well, that doesn't sound very fun. I'm not very good at tests. Well, sometimes tests, though, aren't just for the grade. They're for a revealer. And they help us see where we are. Warren Wiersbe sums it up by chapter. He says, chapter one is patience and testing and trials. Chapter two is practice of the truth. Chapter three is power over the tongue. Chapter four is peacemaker instead of a troublemaker. Well, that's helpful. Chapter 5 is prayerful in troubles. Listen, the way I'd like to describe it, 
The primary purpose of the book is found in a key phrase or key thought, mostly in chapter 2. Let's just, I just want to read a few verses. Look at James 2, 17. It says, Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, I'll show thee my faith by my works. Verse 20, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 22, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? Verse 24, ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And we're going to get to that passage and look at it closely. Just so you know, it's not teaching that you can be saved by works. Salvation is by faith alone. But what, what, what James is saying is that you aren't saved by your works. But listen, you reveal that you are saved by your works. And that's why I've chosen the title of the series that I have. It's simply Faith Works. Meaning that if you have faith, true, legitimate faith in Jesus Christ, if you've honestly been saved, and I mean genuinely saved, then it is going to show up in the way that you live your, your life. Faith works. If you have faith, it will be evident in the way that you live. I heard somebody say that faith and works are like two oars in a boat. If you have just one, you'll go around in circles this way. If you have the other and only the other, you'll go around in circles the other way. But if you've got both working together, you'll get where you're going. And listen, we, we've been, most of us have been saved for a long time. And we say we have faith. But I'm just wondering, if we have such strong faith, where are, where are the works Listen, I, I'm not saying that we don't have works. I, I'm thankful for the evidence here at Eastside, but on a personal level. It'd be good for us to examine ourselves and say, listen, I know I'm saved. I know by faith Jesus Christ has saved my life. But there are areas in my life where the problems are revealing immaturity. And if I'm going to be all I'm supposed to be, then I, my faith better work even when there's trials. And my faith better work even in persecution. And my faith better work when I'm suffering. And my faith better work when, I am in, when I'm faced with treating people a certain way. My faith better work when I'm supposed to, to speak a certain way in kindness to other people. My faith better be working when it's time to pray. Listen, faith works. And primarily, this series will be a verse-by-verse walk through this book in order to examine how our faith is working. But there's a point that I'd like to make as application tonight because I do believe this is the foundation for serving the Lord. It's a foundation for faith that works. And it's one word in James 1, 1. He says, James, a servant. James, a servant. 
earlier, I, in my notes, it said, who is James? And I talk about all the things that James is. But I have another point here, and it says, who is James really? Hey, I'm not, not talking about who he, where he comes from. I'm not talking about his mom. I'm not talking about his brother. I'm not talking about his position. Who is he really? Well, you know who he is really based on how he describes himself in verse 1. Because he says, I'm just a servant. And the word is doulos, and it literally means a slave or a bond slave. And as a Christian, it means you've given up your will and your plans to follow Jesus Christ alone. That's how James describes himself. And just think about the words he could have used, but he didn't use. See, Peter referred to himself in 1 Peter 1. Peter says, I am Peter, an apostle. And James in Ephesians chapter, or sorry, Paul in Ephesians 1 says, I am Paul, an apostle. And you know what James could have said? I am James, the pastor of the biggest church on planet earth. I am James, the son of Mary. That name carries some weight. I am James, the brother of Jesus Christ. He could have written that. I mean, honestly, how many people could have made that claim? How many people could have said, I'm the pastor of the biggest church in the world. My mother is Mary, and I am uh, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. There, were, there was nobody else that could make those claims. Saying he was the brother of Jesus would have given him credibility. But James wasn't interested in defining himself based on how other people saw him. Think about it. If his motivation had been what others thought, he would have said James the pastor, James the son of Mary, and James the brother of Jesus. But by using the word James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he made it clear that his most important label came not from what others thought of him, but from his standing before the Lord. See, James didn't define himself based on, on how those around him viewed him. No, he defined himself based on how he viewed himself before Jesus Christ. And he said, I'm nothing but a servant. And when you allow the view of others to define you, you'll find yourself interested in earthly labels, in earthly accolades, Pastor of Jerusalem, son of Mary, brother of Jesus, bless God. Spiritual resume. Sunday morning special music right here. Sunday school teacher, I've been doing it for years and years and years. I lead junior church. Been doing that for a long time. You know, I, I, you know I, I'm a pretty important part of, pretty key cog in the ministry over here. I, 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 I schedule people, I make decisions, I'm over this ministry. Uh, I'm a vital part of this ministry. I, and it would take a few, probably a few different people to replace what I do. We got to be careful. You know, they say, this is my area, this is my position Listen, in the end, no one really tells me what to do. I've done this so long. Hold up. See, if anyone had a reason to hang his hat on a label, it was James. And there was probably nobody in that early church besides Mary who knew Jesus better. They'd shared a room growing up. Of course, families often shared one room altogether anyway. But he was in a room with Jesus Christ his whole childhood. 
He'd played with them. They'd spent time together. Few others had spent more time with Jesus than James himself. Few people could have uh, answered more questions about Jesus than James. But listen, what in the end, you know what James saw when he looked in the mirror? Nothing special. No, not brother, not son, not pastor. He saw James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James recognized that his family dynamic made no difference when it came to following Jesus. And that's good for us to know because if you've been raised in church and your parents are good Christians and you've been here your whole life, listen, none of that matters when it comes to following God. That doesn't make you a Christian. I mean, God, I've heard it said before, God has no grandchildren. And just because your parents, teenagers, have been in church your whole life and you've been raised right here, that doesn't mean that you have the right view of yourself. Uh, are you a servant of God? Yeah. Do you submit yourself to him in every way? And you're not hanging your hat on the fact that your, your parents have been in church a long time. You're not hanging your hat on the fact that you've been raised here in every, just about every Sunday of your life you've been in church. Listen, none of that, none of that matters if you don't have your own relationship. In the end, listen, we are all just servants. Every person, no matter where they grew up, no matter their last name, no matter who they know, no matter what they've done, they have to come to a point that they recognize they are nothing without Jesus Christ. And if Jesus hadn't stepped in, listen, if Jesus hadn't stepped in and saved James from his sins, just like everybody else, he would have no hope of heaven either. It didn't matter if his mom was Mary and his brother was, was Jay, or Jesus. And it didn't matter what he knew or who he knew. He was a sinner just like the rest of us and he needed Jesus Christ. And in the end, we are all simply servants of Christ who owe all that we are to a merciful Savior. Don't lean on labels that other people might attach to you. Stop depending on accolades or accomplishments or positions. Don't point to the position that you hold as what you hang your hat on. Consider that your most important position is where you stand before God in Jesus Christ. You are a servant. That's how God labels us. What did he say to Satan in the book of Job? Um, Has thou considered my what? My servant, Job. You know how God labels the people that are really following him? He calls them servants. What did he say about Moses? He said, Moses, my servant, is dead. And at the end of your life, if you've, done, if you've lived the kind of life that pleases God and you stand before him, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, what does he say? He says, well done, now what? Servant. So while everybody else is kind of fighting over the position and everybody else is fighting over the labels and they're, you know, and they're thinking this is important and everyone else is seeking, you know, I've got to have more followers than that. We have this many subscribed to our YouTube church channel because that's so important. I mean, if we had a million subscribers, we might start making some money off that. That'd be great. But I mean, we're like at 280 right now. Okay, we got a ways to go. You know, it's status doesn't matter. Labels don't matter. What other people think of us. Now listen, I'm not saying that we don't care what people think because we need a testimony. But I am saying you can't define yourself based on how other people view you. The most important thing is that God views you as a servant. That's your most important label. So I want to, if I was writing a letter, I'd love to write Jason a servant. Would you be able to write that?
Jason a servant, John a servant, Mark a servant, Samuel a servant, Ben Robinson a servant. Would you be able to say that? Or would you be more inclined to say, well, you know, I've, I've been at Eastside for 30 years and these are the things I've done. No, let God's label be the one that you embrace the most. The more you hang your hat on what you've done or who you are, the less likely you are to view yourself as a servant. Servants serve where there's a need. It doesn't matter if others see it. It doesn't matter how attractive the task is. I mean, just last week, I just saw so many things. And I'm, I'm outside doing something. I see um, Brother Mike Steen walking out with a trash bag. You know, and Brother Mike works up there. I mean, he's, he's way up there <laughs> in the sound booth. And he only ever gets noticed when he forgets to turn on a microphone or something. But, you know, Brother Mike is not above taking the trash out, and I'm thankful for that. On Tuesday night, at the end of the conference, we didn't have anything scheduled for cleanup in the kitchen. And I look in the kitchen, there's Vicki Jacob. And who knows where her kids were at that moment. <laughs> but she was in the kitchen cleaning up because she thought, you know what, if, if I don't clean it up, nobody's scheduled to clean up. It may just get left. I'm like, Vicki the servant. Mike the servant. I mean, I mean, there are all kinds, and I, I can't even name all of them. You, you know, I mean, I'm literally, just about every person in this room, I could say, a servant, a servant. I've seen it. And I'm thankful for it. But servants serve whether or not they ever get mentioned in the pulpit. And servants serve whether or not anybody ever recognizes it. Servants serve, uh, they give of themselves for other people. Whether, uh, whether or not they get a thank you. Whether they or not they get a public recognition. I mean, I, I think about Sherilyn writing that letter tonight. Sherilyn, I mean, if anybody's a servant, Sherilyn Anderson. You know, she goes to the, she's been going to the mission a couple nights a week, or at least once a week, just to play the piano over there for them. Nobody ever even knows it. I don't know, she doesn't do it for accolades, but I'm just saying, she serves because God leads her to do it, and she doesn't care if anybody gives her a thank you note. I know she doesn't want to be lifted up, but we need servants like that. People that will serve because it's the right thing and whether or not somebody ever says anything. I mean, servants come early. Servants leave late. Servants don't leave till the job is done. And they do it with a smile on their face because in their minds, the highest calling any of us could ever have is to be called servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and before you think, well, you know, I just, I don't have time. And before you think, well, I'm just not sure, you know, I, I've got this and I, I can't really be as involved. Just want you to think about this passage right here. And if there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels of, and mercies fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a 
servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So before we get to this place where we say, I'm too busy to come and help. Or I'm too busy to volunteer to help in that ministry. I know they need help there, but I just, I've, I'm already kind of maxed out. Or I, my work schedule or this or that. I and mean, we can use all kinds of reasons and excuses. But listen, none of us are above being a servant of God. Because Jesus Christ himself wasn't above being a servant. And if we are going to follow in the footsteps of our Savior, who was a servant, then we need to be servants too. You know what? If anybody could have name dropped, it was Jesus. If anybody could have pinned their accomplishments like a medal on their chest, it was him. And yet him, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth as a servant not to be ministered to, he said but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the one that washed the disciples' feet hours before the cross. And the question I have, is the servant greater than his master? No way. And if he would go to those links for me, and he'd go to those links for his apostles then I need to stop seeking a position and I just need to find a place to serve. A ministry to serve in, stop looking for recognition, just serve and let God reward. Stop seeking to be fulfilled by some label that gets heaped upon me um, or somebody else gives me that's temporary and it's unimportant and instead I will let my position before God and the Lord Jesus Christ define me. Will you? And before, you know, them, and before him, let's just be servants. Following God is unlike any other endeavor. I mean, the way up is down. The path to freedom is slavery. And the journey to joy is denying yourself. And listen, that goes against everything we naturally do. But if we're going to reveal maturity as a church... That is supernatural in nature. We must choose to be servants. There are three thoughts from this text that I want to just look at. I was trying to figure out how to close this out. And these three thoughts just came to me as I was reading it again. Three truths about being a servant. That will help you be a servant. And the first is found in James 1.17. Look what he says. I'm in Philippians. James 1.17. Look what James says. Every good gift and every perfect gift come from above. Sorry, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. You know, one thing that James is saying here is we're nothing without God. You know what a servant, his mantra is? It starts like this. I'm nothing without God. Every good gift, every perfect gift, anything good I've ever done, anything good I've ever had, anything good I've ever seen, it's all come from God alone. 
So if you, if you want to have the mindset of a servant, first, you need to think this. I am nothing without God. Second, look down in James 1.27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. You know, the other thing a servant will think as he's trying to be a servant is, first, I'm nothing without God, but second, I serve God by serving others. Because a lot of times people say, well, I just serve God. I'm out here serving God. Well, how do you do that? Well, how did Jesus do it? He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He came as a servant. How or why? To serve us. You know how you serve God? You say, well, you can call yourself a servant of God, but if you, if you don't ever do anything to be a blessing to somebody else, it's probably revealing a little immaturity. It's number one, I'm nothing without God, but number two, I serve God by serving others. You want to be a servant, number three, look over at James 2.5. He says, hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. You know, sometimes we get all caught up in the people that, you know, that, that look the part and that come from the right background and they look like this and, you know, those are the impressive ones. But listen, that's not how God looks at us and is impressed. Here's the third truth. So first, I'm nothing without God. Number two, I serve God by serving others. But number three, I am most concerned about God's view of me. Because we, we need to stop trying to impress each other and we just need to be concerned about what God thinks about how we're living for him. He, I mean, he even said, he, he said, hearken my beloved brethren, God hath uh, not chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, hath he not? I mean, he's not looking at the same things that we are. And so let's stop trying to impress each other and let's just be servants of God. And you know what you'll find out? We'll find out that we serve each other a lot. Because when we're trying to serve him, we find ourselves serving each other. And we'll also be willing to humble ourselves before each other. Because when you're a servant, you constantly are reminded of the fact that we're nothing without him. I'm telling you, it, there, there is a path to servitude in the book of James. And I think that this is an important message to start with. Because if you're going to reveal yourself as a mature Christian, the very first way, the very first step, the foundation toward maturity is humility, servitude, being willing to humble ourselves and say, God, whatever it is you'd have for me, being willing to humble ourselves before each other and serve each other and being willing to stop living according to everybody else's labels and just live according to this one most important foundational label, and that is servant. I hope tonight, I pray tonight, that as we embark on this journey through James, that the message we remember from the very beginning, above all things, the one thing that James said first, is all the things I'm about to write, they're great. It's going to be helpful. But first, I'm a servant. Are you are you serving? Do you have a place of service that you contribute to weekly at Eastside? 
You say, well, I don't have to serve at Eastside to serve God. Well, that's true, but we serve God by serving each other. And there's really no better outlet to serve than a local church. So I'm asking you again, do you have a place that you're serving? If you do, are you faithful to the place you're serving? Third, if you have a place you're serving and you're faithful to it, do you have the spirit of a servant? Or do you have this mindset that says, this is my little kingdom. Nobody tells me what to do. This is my area. And I am going to do it the way I want. Now listen, being a servant isn't just being in your place. Being a servant is not just being faithful. It's also having the spirit of humility that Jesus Christ had. Do you have a place? Listen, we ought to be servants. And I hope that you are. And I pray as we, as we step into this journey through the book of James that the most important thing we come to is whether or not we are servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together. Every head bowed. Eyes closed. I hope that you will be a servant. And maybe you haven't had a place to serve and you haven't really been diligently looking for a place to serve. Well, maybe it's time tonight to say, God, I want to be a servant. It's not about position. It's not about notoriety. It's not about attention or recognition. I just want to serve. Do you have a place? If you have a place, are you faithful? And if you're faithful, do you have the right spirit as a servant? Because if nothing else, honestly, if there could be one word that defines Eastside Baptist Church that I would love to have define Eastside Baptist Church, I would love for people to say, that's a church full of servants. They just serve. They're just humble. They're just faithful. They're just willing to get in and times get dirty at times do the jobs that nobody else wants to do. They just serve. And listen, I heard that this week from visiting pastors. And I'm thankful for it. But I want to make sure that as a church, we're not doing that just one week a year. We're doing it all year round. Are we servants? Father, have your will and way. Help us to be humble enough to admit whether or not we've, we've got a place we can humbly serve. Lord, help us also, Lord, if we've got a place, to be faithful to our places. And then, Lord, finally help us to have a spirit of a servant. Not just a position, not just in our place, but the right kind of spirit when it comes to how we serve. Lord, work in us. Help us to be humble servants of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, just like James. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.